It's Sunday evening, the 25th of June, 1977, in Bradford, West Yorkshire. At the local pub, Peter Sutcliffe, a 31-year-old lorry driver, enjoys an evening of laughter and jokes with his friends. At around 1am, his companions decide it's time to call it a night. Tomorrow is a work day and they have to wake up early. Peter agrees to drive his friends home. After dropping them off, Peter's twisted urges overcome him. He quickly turns the car around and heads towards his hunting ground in Leeds. He is determined to kill a sex worker tonight. It wouldn't be his first victim, and no one seems to be looking for the killer. Jane McDonald, a 16-year-old shop assistant, is dancing with her friends at a local bar called Hofbrau House, a German-style beer keller in Leeds. Unbeknownst to Jane, the last bus home had come and gone, but the carefree spirit of the evening had her blissfully unaware of the passing hours. At around 11.30pm, Jane decides that it's time to go home. Her friend Mark tells her that his sister might give Jane a ride home. Walking towards his house, Jane and Mark stop at a fish and chip shop for a midnight snack and then continue to walk the quiet streets of Leeds. Arriving in front of his house, they soon realize that Mark's sister is not home. Jane will have to take a taxi home instead. Jane heads towards the Chapeltown area in an attempt to call a taxi. After calling from a kiosk multiple times, she receives no reply from the taxi company. Faced with no other option, Jane resigns herself to the idea of walking home alone. As she is walking along Chapeltown Road in the direction of Reginald Street, she is unaware that she just crossed Wilma McCann's house, Sutcliffe's first murder victim. Continuing down the road, she walks past a club called Gaiety, completely unaware that Emily Jackson, another victim of the same killer, was last seen in front of this very club. Strolling around the streets of the Chapeltown area, Sutcliffe notices Jane at around 2am. She's walking alone in Chapeltown at this time of the night. She must be a prostitute, Sutcliffe convinces himself. He parks his car on a nearby road. He then takes a hammer and a kitchen knife from underneath his seat and puts them in his pocket. He walks behind her for a short distance. Sutcliffe's footsteps did not alarm Jane. It's not the first time she's been walking alone at night around Leeds. She takes a turn on Reginald Street and, as she approaches a playground, Peter strikes her over the head with a hammer. Jane falls to the floor immediately. She doesn't make a sound. The killer immediately drags her body about 20 yards into the corner of the play area. 
Jane's shoes make a horrible scraping noise along the ground as Sutcliffe is dragging her. But the killer is not done yet. He hits her again with the hammer to make sure she's dead. He then pulls her clothes up and stabs her several times in the chest and in the back. The killer's clothes are soaked in blood. As he leaves the crime scene, he turns around and looks at her body. He couldn't be more proud of what he had achieved tonight. He smiles and walks back to his car. He throws away the murder weapons and clothes he was wearing in a remote area and then drives home where his wife is fast asleep. He goes to bed like nothing ever happened. What Sutcliffe doesn't know is that Jane was not a prostitute and that from tomorrow onwards he will be given the name of the Yorkshire Ripper by the media and will forever stand as a tragic chapter in British criminal history. His chilling killing spree of the next five years will terrorize women all over the country. Welcome to Dark Hour Chronicles. In this podcast, we will delve into the most infamous and thrilling true crime stories, be them solved or still shrouded in mystery. In part one of the Yorkshire Ripper, a British horror story, we will be covering the first known attacks and murders committed by Peter Sutcliffe. Peter Sutcliffe was born on the 2nd of June, 1946. His early life was less than ideal. Growing up, Peter was the eldest child of five siblings. The Sutcliffe family was crammed into a small working-class house in Bingley, Yorkshire. His father, John William Sutcliffe, was an abusive alcoholic who once smashed a beer glass over Peter's head was sitting in his chair at the Christmas table when he was five years old. John wasn't home often, but when he was, the children were very frightened of him. He also had numerous affairs and he bragged about them in front of his children. Peter's mother, Kathleen Frances Coonan, was showering him with attention. He had a very close relationship with her and believed she was perfect. At the age of four, Sutcliffe was enrolled at St. Joseph's Catholic Primary School, where he was severely bullied by his peers. In 1970, when Sutcliffe was a teenager, John took him and two of his siblings to a local hotel. After he booked a room, his father posed as Kathleen's lover and lured her into the room where he exposed her infidelity her children. Sutcliffe was horrified. Dr. Kerry Nixon, a forensic psychologist, believes that the incident in the hotel is the most significant tale of what went on to happen, stating that in Sutcliffe's mind, even the perfect women have become distorted. Women will let you down, women will lie, women will cheat and are not to be respected. During his later teenage years, 
Sutcliffe developed an increasing obsession with voyeurism, dedicating a considerable amount of time to spying on sex workers. He dropped out of school at the age of 15 and took on various low-level jobs, including working as a gravedigger at Bingley Cemetery in the 1960s. His colleagues later said that Sutcliffe displayed an unusual enthusiasm for his work at the cemetery, going so far as to willingly take on overtime duties, such as washing up the corpses. There were rumours of grave robbing, and that Sutcliffe would take stolen jewellery and perform party tricks with them at the local pub. It is believed that his strange obsession made him desensitised to death and dead bodies. In 1967, Sutcliffe met Sonia Surma, the daughter of Czech refugees. They got married in 1974. After they got married, Sonia was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and the couple could not have children together. As a young man, Sutcliffe regularly hired sex workers. In 1969, upon learning that his then-girlfriend had cheated on him, he retaliated by hiring a sex worker. However, he was so emotionally distressed that he found himself unable to engage in any sexual activity with a prostitute. The sex worker ridiculed him and he felt absolutely humiliated. This incident is thought to have triggered his hatred towards sex workers. Sutcliffe's first documented assault of a sex worker took place not long after this event. One evening, he followed a sex worker into a garage and struck her over the head with a stone in a sock. The following day, police visited Sutcliffe's residence because the woman he had attacked had taken note of the license plate on the car that he drove that night. Although Sutcliffe confessed to hitting her, he claimed it was with his hand. The police opted not to pursue the case since the woman chose not to press charges. Throughout the early 70s, Sutcliffe carried on with his obsession of following sex workers around the streets of Leeds and Bradford. He committed his second assault on the night of the 5th of July 1975 in Keighley, West Yorkshire. He targeted 36-year-old Anna Rogolsky, who was walking alone. He struck her with a hammer rendering her unconscious. Then, Sutcliffe slashed her stomach with a knife. He was disturbed by a neighbour and left without killing Anna. After a brain surgery, she survived, but the attack left her deeply traumatised. A month after the second attack, Sutcliffe struck again. On the evening of the 15th of August, Sutcliffe assaulted 46-year-old Olive Smelth in Halifax, West Yorkshire. Using his usual method, he initiated a brief conversation with Olive, casually discussing the weather, before hitting her with a hammer over the head from behind. He then disarranged her clothing and slashed her lower back with a knife. For a second time, an interruption prevented him from completing his attack. 
leaving his victim severely injured but still alive. Twelve days later, on the 27th of August, Sutcliffe targeted 14-year-old Tracy Brown in Silston, West Yorkshire. After walking along Tracy for 30 minutes and making small talk, he ambushed her from behind and struck her on the head five times. He ran off when he saw the lights of a passing car, leaving his victim in need of a brain surgery. Tracy survived the attack and later said that she never once felt intimidated or in danger walking with a strange man that had approached her. On the morning of the 30th of October, 1975, a body of an unidentified woman was found in a playing field near the Chapel Town red light area in Leeds. After a thorough search of the area, the police came empty-handed in their quest to identify the body. Described as a decaying Victorian suburb with a slum problem, a large number of sex workers and high unemployment rate, Chapel Town was a less desirable area to live in in the 70s. Nonetheless, the people residing in the area were shocked to hear about the murder. The dead woman sustained horrific injuries, two hammer blows to the head and at least 15 stab wounds. After door-to-door inquiries around the neighborhood, body was identified as that of 28-year-old mother of four, Wilma Mary McCann. She and her children lived in a council house less than 200 meters away from where her body was found. She was recently divorced from her abusive husband. Wilma was last seen the night before the murder. The previous evening, she left her house at around 7.30 p.m. She was spotted leaving the top club in downtown Leeds at around 1 a.m. that morning. She stopped a random car and asked the driver if he could take her to Scott Hall Road, where she was later found dead. The club Wilma was seen leaving was a known brothel, and it didn't take long for the police to describe her to the media as somewhat of a prostitute. As soon as the people of Leeds found out that Wilma was a sex worker, the public interest in the case died out. Despite a thorough investigation that included 150 officers from the West Yorkshire Police and over 11,000 interviews, the killer remained at large. The West Yorkshire Police assumed that the homicide was an isolated incident. Little did the investigators know that this murder would mark the beginning of a deadly spree. On the morning of the 20th of January, 1976, the body of 42-year-old Emily Monica Jackson was found in a run-down alley in the Manor Industrial Estate near the Chapel Town Red Light area. She suffered 52 stab wounds. The body was lying on the muddy ground with a head away from the road and her feet towards the main road. 
It looked like the body was posed by the killer so that when someone came around the corner of the street, the first thing they would see would be the dead body with the legs spread with the feet pointing towards them. The injuries to Emily's body were horrific. Two circular fractures on the back of the head looked to be caused by hammer strikes. These specific injuries prompted the investigators to link Wilma McCann's murder with the murder of Emily Jackson. Other injuries to Emily's body looked to be caused by a Phillips screwdriver. Visible on Emily's tie was a distinctive stamp of a boot. The killer stamped on her tie with so much force that the detectives were able to make an impression of the sole of the boot and ascertain the shoe size, determining it to be a size 7. The detectives believed that the imprint of the boot revealed significant insights into the killer's mental state during the commission of the murder. It suggested that taking the life of the sex worker wasn't enough. Rather, the murderer felt compelled to express disgust towards the victim. Emily Jackson was a mother of three small children. Facing severe financial difficulties, she had been persuaded by her husband to engage in prostitution, using the family van as her place to do business. On the evening of her murder, Emily was at the Gaiety pub on Roundhay Road in Leeds, trying to find new customers. Sutcliffe picked her up from the pub that night and drove her half a mile to some derelict buildings on Enfield Terrace. He hit her over the head with a hammer and then used a sharpened screwdriver to stab her in the neck, chest and abdomen and then he stamped on her thigh. Upon linking the murders of Wilma McCann and Emily Jackson, West Yorkshire police detectives believed that the killer harbored a considerable amount of animosity towards sex workers. On the 9th of May, 1976, Sutcliffe attacked 20-year-old Marcella Claxton in Roundhay Park in Leeds. He hit her over the head with a hammer multiple times, but Marcella survived the attack. While the police connected the assault to the other two murders, they remained clueless about the identity of the attacker. On the 5th of February 1977, the body of 28-year-old Irene Richardson was found by a dog walker in Roundhay Park, Leeds. She was a known sex worker from the Chapel Town area. Irene suffered multiple hammer blows to the head and three stab wounds in the stomach. After she was dead, the killer mutilated her body with a knife. No evidence of sexual interference with the body was found. Close to the body, the detectives found tire tracks believed to be made by the killer's car. West Yorkshire police detectives linked the three killings and established a clear pattern. Hammer blows, death and mutilation. It became evident that the detectives were dealing with a serial killer 
that showed no signs of stopping anytime soon. Feeling the pressure to catch the killer before he would murder more women, the police made numerous appeals to the public and encouraged the sex workers around the Chapel Town's red light area to be more careful. A team of officers were dispatched in Chapeltown to gather number plates of cars that were in the area at night soliciting sex workers. Noticing the police's presence in the red light area of Leeds, the killer moves his hunting ground to the nearby town of Bradford. On the 23rd of April, 1977, the police discovered the lifeless body of Patricia Atkinson Mitra, a 32-year-old sex worker. The night of the murder, the killer picked up Patricia in Manningham, Bradford, and then drove together to her flat. After they arrived, Sutcliffe hit her over the back of the head four times to incapacitate her. He then stabbed her six times in the stomach with a knife. When the investigators arrived at the crime scene, they quickly realized that the floor was covered in bloody boot prints and footprints. From the placement of the prints, it looked like the killer had walked to the door, looked at the dead woman, and then returned to the body and rearranged the position of the body. The investigators determined that the boot prints matched the ones they found on Emily Jackson's body. The police attempted to find the origin of the boot print, but soon realized that the particular imprint was very popular in the UK during that time. They opted not to pursue any further investigation into the matter. The detectives theorized that the murderer, noticing the increased police presence in the Chapeltown area, opted to relocate to a different town to avoid capture. Public interest in the killings increased following the murder of the fourth victim. Residents of Leeds and Bradford believed that the killer exclusively targeted prostitutes, assuming that those not involved in sex work were immune of becoming victims of such violence. Unfortunately, the media, the people and the police were all wrong. On the evening of the 25th of June, 1977, 16-year-old Jane Michelle McDonald met with friends at a bar in Leeds. Having missed the last bus home, she returned to her friend's house waiting for her sister to drive her home. After waiting approximately 45 minutes, she decided eventually to just walk home. She was attacked by Sutcliffe near the Chapeltown area at around 2 a.m. Her body was discovered the following morning by children in the playground between Reginald Terrace and Reginald Street in Chapeltown. Jane had been hit over the head three times with a hammer and had been stabbed in the chest and back. A broken bottle was found embedded in her chest. This was the moment when the case changed completely. Unlike the previous murdered victims, Jane 
was not a prostitute. She had a stable home life with a loving family and worked at a local supermarket. For the first time since the killings had begun, the national press was interested in the case, appearing on the first pages of all major newspapers in Britain. The killer was dubbed the Yorkshire Ripper due to his modus operandi that resembled the infamous unidentified serial killer Jack the Ripper that haunted the Whitechapel district of London almost a century before, in 1888. The people were shocked that the Yorkshire Ripper had murdered an innocent girl and now the residents of Bradford and Leeds lived in constant fear. The West Yorkshire police were nowhere near to catching the killer. Due to the widespread public interest, the police were inundated with calls from across the nation. Following up on leads became an overwhelming task, further complicating the case. With mounting public pressure, the West Yorkshire police were desperate to catch the Ripper. In an attempt to convince the killer to stop murdering women, the investigators decided to broadcast an open letter. The letter, which was published in all newspapers throughout the country, read in part, You've killed five times now. In less than two years, you have butchered five women in Leeds and Bradford. Your motive, it is believed, is a dreadful hate for prostitutes a hate that drives you to slash and bludgeon your victims. But inevitably, that twisted passion went terribly wrong on Sunday. An innocent sixteen-year-old, a happy, respectable, working-class girl from a decent Leeds family crossed your path. How did you feel yesterday morning when you learned that your blood-stained crusade against streetwalkers had gone so horribly wrong? Sick in mind that you undoubtedly are. There must have been some spark of remorse as you rid yourself of Jane's bloodstains. But the letter did not faze the Yorkshire Ripper. People all over Britain were wondering when the next attack would take place. Not even a month after Jane's murder, the Ripper struck once again. On the 10th of July 1977, Sutcliffe assaulted 43-year-old Maureen Long in Bradford. Maureen was struck over the head and stabbed four times with a knife. What set the attack apart from the rest of them was that the victim had survived. This was the breakthrough the police were looking for. It was the first attack that the police knew about where the woman had survived and can tell them details about the killer. Maureen was found suffering from hypothermia and had sustained grave injuries to her abdomen. When she woke up in the hospital the next day, Maureen was not able to tell the investigators much of what had happened to her. The savage blows to her head damaged her memory. The police were once again back to square one, the evidence that they had so far could not identify anybody. In a bid to find the Ripper, more undercover police officers were placed in the red light areas of Leeds and Bradford, 
tasked with recording car registration details of cars that were coming in with a single male occupant. After a while, the police realized that they had a huge amount of car registrations that would take a long time to investigate. The incident room at the Leeds police station had over 270 people working full-time on the search for the Yorkshire Ripper. Members of the public would contact the incident room to share any suspicions or information they had. The incident room generated thousands of files on potential suspects and subsequently the police would conduct interviews with each and every one of these individuals. Despite countless inquiries and interviews, the elusive killer remained at large. On the 9th of October, 1977, the body of 20-year-old Jean Bernadette Jordan was found on an allotment of land. She had been dead for at least eight days. Sutcliffe picked her up from the red light area of Manchester on the 1st of October. He drove her to Princess Road near the Southern Cemetery where he proceeded to hit her over the head at least 10 times. After she died, Sutcliffe mutilated the body with a knife. He then moved the body behind the cemetery, where it was later discovered. After analyzing the crime scene, the detectives realized that at one point between the murder and when the body was found, the killer came back to the scene and moved the body. Jean's clothes and handbag were scattered around the field she was found in. In a secret compartment inside the handbag, the detectives found a brand new £5 note. Each £5 note is assigned a distinctive serial number. And when the Bank of England issues them, the bank knows what district these notes go to. Upon uncovering the note, the police theorized that the killer may have paid Jean £5 for sex work. They speculated that a few days after the murder, the killer returned to the crime scene in an attempt to retrieve the note, but he was unsuccessful. The detectives traced the £5 note to the branches of the Midland Bank in Bradford. The note was put in circulation on the 27th of September, only four days before James's death. By analyzing bank operations, the police managed to narrow down their investigation to 8,000 employees who might have received it in their wage packet. Over a span of three months, the police conducted interviews with 5,000 men working at local factories in Bradford, among whom was Sutcliffe. At the time, Peter was working as a lorry driver for one of the factories that the police were searching in hopes of finding the Ripper. On the 2nd of November, 1977, two police officers visited the Sutcliffe home to conduct an interview with regard to the five-pound note. They knock on the door. Sutcliffe's wife, Sonia, responds 
and invites the officers inside. Please, come in. As Sutcliffe comes down the stairs and lays eyes on the officers, his demeanor appears to be relaxed and casual and did not seem to be worried by the unannounced visit. The four of them sit at the table in the living room and the officers start asking him questions. Mr. Sutcliffe, where were you on the night of the 1st of October? Join us in part two of the Yorkshire Ripper, a British horror story, where we will continue the gruesome story of Sutcliffe's diabolical attacks and how, by pure coincidence, the elusive killer was caught after five years of terror. <laughs>